Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes, almost 600 episodes and counting, all of it is made available for free to you, the listener. It's a listener-supported program. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I, I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just How's it one going, time? everybody? What's right. going on? Hello. Right. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. How are you feeling today? I hope you're well. I have Bali Joswal on the program. Her new novel is called The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgle Sisters. It is available from William Morrow. It was the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown book club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. Uh, Joey Grantham is the editor-in-chief. If you want to submit some work over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. Uh, perhaps you've heard of Bali Kaur Joswal. Her, uh, previous book, Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows, was picked by Reese Witherspoon for her book club. That was a pretty buzzy novel. And, uh, this new one, The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgle Sisters, is excellent. So, I was thrilled to get a chance to talk with Bali. Uh, we did so over the transom. She lives in Singapore. So, uh, we, I think this is the first time I've ever talked to an author who lives in Singapore. It was exciting for me to get the opportunity and to hear from her and to learn a little bit about her life and what it's like over there and so on and so forth. And so let's get right to it. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bali Joswal, and her new novel, One More Time, is called The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgle Sisters. I was born here, um, but we, we moved around quite a bit because of my dad's job. So we always came back to Singapore in between. Um, so I had kind of a, a partial, partially Singaporean childhood and then partially international. And what did your dad do that took you all over the place? Um, my dad worked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Singapore. 
So he was uh, he worked for the Singapore embassy in, in whichever country we were in. So a diplomat. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is that you are, I want to say, the second or third, maybe even fourth person that I've talked to on this show who is the child of a diplomat who wound up. Really? Beca- yeah. In fact, <laughs> I, I just had um, Chloe Aregis on the program and mm-hmm. her father was a uh, uh, a diplomat for Mexico and they lived over, right, they lived okay. over in Holland. So I don't know what, what is it about being the child of a diplomat <laughs> that makes you into a fiction writer? Well, I think it's a, it's that whole thing about being part of a third culture when you're, uh, um, when you move around like that, where you're kind of, you live in different places, but you also are constantly outside. I think it makes you develop a, a really strong inner world. Um, you know, you kind of, you, I think books and stories are consistent um, and, and, and narratives, you kind of hold on to narratives that you can create because things are changing around you so much, maybe. Okay. And so where did you live all? Like, can you list off some of the places where your dad was posted? Yeah. So my dad was posted to um, Tokyo um, mm-hmm. uh, when I was little, like five. Uh, and then he was posted to Moscow when I was 10. Um and we we didn't actually like live full time in Moscow. We sort of like shuttled back and forth between Singapore and Moscow. We must have been like the only family in the world who was doing that. Um, and then uh, the Philippines when I was in high school. So I I spent my last three years of high school in Manila, Philippines. And did you have a favorite among the three places? Um, it's hard to say because they were all at such different ages and different stages in my development as a person i suppose um i I remember really enjoying tokyo when i was a little kid um but then i also i also had a lot of fun in manila um and then i really enjoyed the philippines so yeah it's hard to say i don't remember i I remember moscow being very cold (laughs) um but you know i wouldn't say i enjoyed it less than anything else but um i guess i don't have as many memories of it because we were only there part of the time and we were always indoors so wait, so the Moscow years, was that Soviet Moscow or was that post-Soviet? Like just post-Soviet. Oh. So it was, it was still, was still pretty Soviet. <laughs> yeah. I'm like just kind of pretty fake... different from what it is now. Like I've heard it's a completely different place now. Interesting. And then it sounds like with the Shergill sisters, um, your new novel, you're dealing with siblings and I'm, I'm just imagining that you grew up with multiple siblings because you write about this dynamic so well. Is that the case? <laughs> no, I have an older brother, uh, but I didn't grow up with, with siblings. I, I, um, I have a lot of friends with sisters, and I'm really fascinated by the dynamic, particularly between sisters, because they can be such good friends, and then they can be such like you know horrible enemies, and they can be... Um, really vulnerable with each other um, and really there for each other, but then they can also be really brutal. And I, and I've always found that really interesting about sisters that this, like that they can swing um, between sort of different moods with each other and, and different, um, I guess different, different ways of expressing um, how they care for each other. And I just don't think that you get that much in just a regular female friendship. You have to be you have to be related to someone to be able to come back from some of the things that you experience with them. Yeah. Uh, and I've always found that really fascinating. Yeah, it is amazing what you can forgive of a sibling. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I I have two sisters and they're mm-hmm. they're very close. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's okay for me to say they can fight like yeah. you would not believe. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not really a part of that. Like I, <laughs> I'm removed from it. Maybe partially yeah. by choice, but also just because I'm not 
a sister. You know, it's it's different between them than it is between me and them. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Maybe you have insight into this because I have two kids. I have a, a boy and a girl. And you just mentioned that sometimes sisters can be like the best of friends. And I think yeah. of I like two of my dearest friends growing up were identical twin sisters mm. and they're just best friends. Like, mm. I, I mean, I, I know they've probably fought, but it was, they really are just super close. Yeah. And when you have multiple children, you're like, wow, I hope my kids really like each other. <laughs> <laughs> sure would be nice. Like, is there anything I can do? Or is this just like, is this like, uh, I mean, aside from like holding it together reasonably well as a parent and creating like a, a stable home, like some of this stuff is just nature, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the, the personalities. Um, I think there are things that you can do to divide your children. Um, I've definitely seen that. Uh, there, there are things that you can do to pit your children against each other. Um, like what? Oh, like favoring one over another or, or making unfair comparisons between them. Um, you know, I, I think I've probably seen that a lot in, in my own experience of, of having an older brother. But also um, I've seen that with my friends with their sisters as well. Um, you know, a lot of the, the fights seem to be rooted in this sort of, you know, but, but dad and mom like you better or you always get away with this. Um, even in their thirties and forties, they're still having that, that like the, the, the fight seems to be based in that, in that, um, animosity that they had since they were young. Do you know um, what, you know what I do? Mm-hmm. I, uh, whenever I'm with my daughter, <laughs> I tell her, I say, she's eight years old. I say, mm-hmm. I say, don't tell anyone, but you're my favorite. <laughs> And then, I know. And then, but then when I'm with my son, when I'm, when I'm with my son, I'm like, don't tell anyone, but you're my favorite. <laughs> so my plan is that they're going to eventually like out one another, you know, they're going to out me. Yeah. And they're going to realize. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully when they're adults and they, they understand what the, the whole ruse was. <laughs> my, I was a favorite. No, I was a favorite. It's, it's so funny too. Cause my, I mean, my son's still a little bit young, but my daughter takes it so seriously. She's like, okay, I won't oh. tell. Oh. <laughs> That's so, very cute. So what about you? You, you said your older brother was, was your older brother the favorite or were you the favorite? Did you have a sense of that growing up? Um, I, I, yeah, I think, I think, um, growing up in a, in an, Indian family probably contributed to this. Um, I think my, I think it was, it was very unconscious a lot of the times. My parents definitely um, uh, gave him more privileges uh, and more freedoms. Uh, And, but then they didn't like to think of them, think of themselves as being traditional in those ways. They like, they like to consider themselves very modern. So when I, um, you know, confronted them about it, it was always, no, no, everything's fair. He's just getting three times as much as you for his allowance. <laughs> it's completely fair. We're not those kinds of people who favor a boy over a girl. That's really backwards and old-fashioned. But he doesn't have a curfew, and you do. So it was very confusing. There were lots of mixed messages. Um, and I do think that probably breeds a little bit of um, hostility between siblings and personality differences as well. I mean, I think that I think that you know if if there is that sort of competitiveness, um, and then your personalities, you know, there's not there's not much overlap in terms of your interests or your personality. Then then yeah, I guess you can just not be very close growing up. Yeah, you know, and I think too, like my my sisters and I live so far apart. I'm always like, it's just hard to see each other on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But then I guess the flip side is, if we lived right next door to each other and we were constantly in each other's faces, maybe we wouldn't get along as well. I don't know, you know, so I guess yeah. you just, you just got to take it as it comes. But, um, you, you grew up in Singapore. Mm-hmm. 
but your family roots are in India. Yeah, in Punjab, yep. In, just like in the book. Yeah. Okay, so I'm curious, like, how much time you spent in India as a child and, um, you know, what your experiences there have been like. So I didn't spend any time in India as a child, actually, because my parents, um, my parents migrated to Singapore when they, well, actually my, my father migrated to Singapore when he was like two or three years old. My mom was born in Singapore. So Singapore has always been home for them. Um, they were, they were the first generation of migrants. Um, and so I think, I think India was quite far removed and quite, you know, kind of, um, a, a place of the past for them. Um, and so for us as well, it was kind of a, a place of the past and it, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge part of my identity. I don't think, um, being, um, Indian or at least, or at least, you know, it, it was, it was, um, there, there was, there was also the Singaporean side of my identity and the, and growing up internationally as well meant that there were, there were these other aspects of my identity, um, to, to adopt. Um, but I think Indian culture is very, um, India is culturally very, I want to say strong is not the right word and pervasive sounds a bit sinister, but it's, you know, I I think, um, even second or third generation migrants have this real sense of their Indianness. It comes through in so many of the things that their their parents culturally do, um, the music that they you know that that um, that goes around that their parents listen to, um, the movies. So I think that um, I still had a, a really strong sense of the Indian part of my identity, but it was very much it, it was still it was still sort of held at arm's length. Like I, I don't think I, I um, um, was very sort of. Indian growing up. Um, and so I think my interest in visiting India only came much later, um, when I was in my twenties and I had friends who had grown up in, um, big cities in India. Um, and I, you know, went to, to, to Bombay to, to go to a friend's wedding. Um, and that was my first time going to India actually. It was, it wasn't this kind of return to the homeland or it wasn't this, um, you know, a, a, a visit to my parents' ancestral village or anything. It was more, going to india for a party and that was that seemed like sort of an appropriate introduction for me to india it felt more like it was on my terms um and then when i started writing the showgirl sisters because i was just really interested um in this idea of uh migrants you know people who've grown up in one culture returning to another culture and returning to a place that so many people travel to for pilgrimages and so many people go to, to achieve spiritual enlightenment and everything. But for these women, it's, it's different. It's, it's, there, there is a sense of home to it, but then they also don't necessarily feel like they belong there. Um, when I thought about that whole conflict and what it would mean for their identity, I knew I had to make the same trip that they made in India. So you can, so so, okay. So you conceived of the plot for the book, or at least the basic contours of the plot for the book prior to taking this trip. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I see. I had it. I had it the other way around in my head. I thought you had like taken this trip and then that, that was where the, the idea sparked, but it was kind of, it was a research trip. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wish that I had taken another trip. So I kind of took this trip, um, in the first couple of months of writing the book when I still really didn't have much of a sense of the plot. I knew who the characters were. Um, I knew what the characters wanted and, and, and where, where they might end up. Um, but so I, I wish I had done a, another trip, 
um, later on in the book so that when things unfolded and developed, I could have been there to try to imagine them. Um, but, but circumstances made it difficult. I, I was pregnant and had a child and yeah, it was just too difficult to make that trip again. Um, but yeah, that, that would have been pretty interesting. So, and you gave yourself, I felt like when I was reading, I was like, wow, she really gave herself like a lot of work. Uh, because you have, you have three strong characters, three sisters, um, you know, traveling together. Each one has her own, um, plot, her own, um, you know, inner and outer conflicts to deal with. And you have to find a way to weave all of those together and then find a way to resolve them, uh, in a satisfying manner. So, did yeah. you did you struggle? It sounds like you said when you were conceiving of the novel, you had some idea where things were going to end. But I'm curious. Yeah. To, I'm curious to know like how much outlining was done. I'm curious to know how uh, how many times you got stuck or almost abandoned it, if ever. Yeah. So this this is actually I think this is probably the hardest thing I've ever written um, because I came up with the the idea um, pretty pretty quickly. Um, and then had to follow through with it. I kind of felt like I was on a treadmill because it was um, it was the second book in a deal that I was offered by HarperCollins when they um, offered to publish erotic stories for Punjabi widows. Um, which is which so, is a, which is a great title, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Um, and so I was I was you know I was asked you know what's the next thing you're working on. And I had some loose ideas here and there, but nothing really concrete. And this was one of them. And it was really just the, the vaguest idea. Um, and I hadn't really had time to settle and, um, you know, cultivate uh, in my mind. And so I just went, yeah, this idea. And then, yep, that was that was that was what I was going to have to write. Um, and so I and because I was on that treadmill and on that deadline, I really had to just keep going. There really wasn't an option to give up, which in hindsight, I'm glad now because I think I would have given up on it um, a lot. I, I think I would have given up on it and then returned to it years later after taking that trip several times. And um, and this forced me to use a, a different sort of um, or, or develop a different way of writing where I went into things not knowing what was going to happen um, and where I kind of felt my way around. Like I, I felt a bit blind sometimes or like I was in a dark room just feeling my way around. Um, which was out of my comfort zone, but it it produced all of these unlikely um, scenarios and, and 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 or unexpected scenarios and 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 um, plot lines that I that, that wouldn't have occurred to me if I had been um, plotting and planning and 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 trying to 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 mold things the way I usually do. So things came up quite organically, and that that was that was pretty cool. So, and it sounds like this was a different approach that, that you took, uh, as opposed to what you did for erotic stories for Punjabi widows. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. It was, it was just, I just kind of, I mean, my whole motto was just get it down and then get it right. So I was just kind of throwing words on the page every day, just writing and going, Oh, that's, you know, that's probably going to be cut, but I'm just going to keep writing it, see what happens. And sometimes, you know, you spend a whole day or you'd write like two or three pages and you're just like, I'm just getting I'm just getting words down. I'm just getting situations and scenarios down. And I can tell that this one isn't going anywhere. But then you look at it at the end of the day and you find these little lines here and there that came up in all of that mess that you're like, oh, now there's something. Now there's a jewel. Now there's a gem. Like it, And it was really cool to, to do that um, process. And I, I find myself being a little um, less constricted now when I write. Like I just, I just let things sort of come out on the page and I, and I try to see where they go. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Did you ever write yourself down roads that wound up uh, like fizzling and not being yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like I, and I say this thinking about like getting way far down a road that winds up being not at all usable uh, yeah. and how that, that can be discouraging. Like, did that happen to you or did you, you tend to correct yourself relatively quickly? Yeah, I think so. I think that happens a lot um, with, with any draft. I think it happens particularly um, when you're starting out as a writer because you kind of, yeah, you kind of go down a road and you don't have that voice in your head. You don't have that editorial voice as much saying, no, no, this isn't, this isn't going to go anywhere. So you, you write those things and then you have a really hard time deleting them because you're like, oh, I spent so much time on this. You become um, more discerning, I think, the more you write um, and you start to self-edit a little bit better. So you start to go, you start, you start something and you go, you, you get that feeling that it's not really going anywhere and you go, oh, you know, I'll save this for later. Um, but then there was, there were still some um, sections of Shergirl Sisters. There were entire Actually, there were a lot now that I think about it. Um, there were, you know, entire um, scenes, like, you know, five, six page scenes um, that just, you know, I put them down in the novel. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to have to follow up on this. And I don't I don't know where it's going to go. It's going to take the novel in a completely different direction. Um, and, you know, the, the editors agreed. Um, and that was that was hard to let go of. But then some you have to write those things in order to get to the thing that you actually want to write or that that's actually good for the novel. Sometimes you have to get that stuff out of your system. So it's a long process, but but it is it is worth it. And with Punjabi Widows, did you do like a detailed outline and it, it was a much more structured process? Yeah, I mean, I, I outline and I do have, um, you know, I do I do have a sense of structure usually. um with my work, but it also, it changes a lot. The outline, you know, tends to, to bend and, 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 um, make way for other things that might happen. Um, it all, it all, you know, plans out really neatly in your mind, but then it doesn't go when, once you start writing and, and you, you're putting in all those nuances and you're putting in all the descriptions of the surroundings and, 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 and you're considering how people interact with each other. Um, they kind of they push they push against the boundaries of that outline a lot and it, it changes. But I still like to have a sense of um, the shape of the story uh, before before I start it, um, just to avoid sort of writing and writing and writing and and, and then ending ending up at a dead end. And so you're writing about three sisters and uh, forgive me if I pronounce any of these wrong, but it's Rajni, Jasmine, and Sharina. Yeah, perfect. Okay, <laughs> uh, is there a sister? 
in the group that you connect with most strongly? Um, I'm not sure. I, I really enjoyed writing all of them. Like I thought that they all, there was something, there's a lot of depth that I wanted to create in each of these sort of archetypes. Like they, you know, they, they felt at first like, you know, the stern one and the, the attention seeking one and the traditional one. Um, but then as you get sort of more and more involved with the sisters, you give them context and you give them motivations and, and fears, um, and they become very real to you. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I, th- I think um, because I got I had a chance to divide time between them um, on this journey, I, I had quite a quite a good time with with all of them. So I didn't pull them aside one by one and say, you're my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Just like your parents did with your brother. You couldn't yeah. possibly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I knew how that felt. <laughs> Uh, well, I felt like there was a, a lot of savvy in the way that you built these characters in terms of birth order. I was like, yeah, this is definitely the middle child. And I felt like Sharina, <laughs> I had that right. Sharina was the youngest, right? Yeah. 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 I, so I felt like you had the archetypes nailed in terms of birth order. Is that something that you intuited or is it something you did any reading about? I think I went back and forth between, uh, like, I don't, I don't think it ever made it to the writing of the novel, but when I was, you know, making my little notes and trying to figure out who the characters were, I had, I, I was, I, I knew Rajni was going to be the oldest. I didn't know about Jasmine and Sharina. Like, I didn't know Jasmine should be the youngest or Sharina should be the, the, the youngest. Um, and I kind of, I went back and forth and then I finally decided that um, it just made more sense for the story for Sharina to distance herself from everyone after seeing what her older sisters were like. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, peace out. I'm going to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Getting as far away from you as possible. <laughs> well, as a middle child, I am a middle child. I have an, an older <laughs> sister and younger sister. And so I was like, you know, Jasmine is speaking to me. She's a hot mess. And I, <laughs> I feel like a sense of connection with her. Oh, good. Yeah. I really, I, I, I with her character, I really had to make sure that, make sure that she, um, came across sympathetic sometimes because she was so um, self-centered as well. And so, um, you know, she, she's, she, she, she can be just so difficult to travel with. Um, and, 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 and she kind of didn't, didn't really listen to Rajni and she was always, they, they're just always getting into those fights. And so I, I really wanted to give, I, I think I focused a lot on her um, during her parts of the narrative to make sure that she also came across as sympathetic and she was also someone that we should care about. So I want to ask you a little bit more about traveling to India as somebody who has uh, family roots in India, um, and, but not a lot of experience growing up being there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you were raised by parents who had basically uh, immigrated and taken on the nationality of their new home, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you go to Bombay uh, for the wedding or you go yeah. to, I guess you started, did you go to Delhi and, and go through the journey that the sisters went through? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty similar journey. So because like, yeah. India can uh, is sort of famously, um, it, it's an, it can be an overwhelming place yeah. to, to visit. There's just so much happening. Um, yeah. Was that the case for you? Like, What was it like to kind of experience it as... A tourist, but also somebody who has, uh, I don't know if you still have family there. Did you have relatives still living there or at least, uh, you know, uh, yeah. ancestral so had, roots? So I did. So I went with my parents. Um, I knew that traveling that route alone wasn't going to be an option for me as a, as a lone woman traveling. 
Um, and I, my husband's Australian, so he was, he was not going to be very helpful in navigating the villages. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we talked about it. We were like, you know, should we go? And we realized that it would be a very different trip. Like if he went with me, it was going to be, yeah, we were going to, um, very much look like outsiders, very much be outsiders. I mean, I still seem like an outsider in India. You know, it's, it's, it's quite obvious, I think, to the locals when you're an Indian who lives abroad. Um, you know, it's quite obvious from the way you talk and, and perhaps the way you dress as well that, that you're not, you know, that, that you're not from there. Um, so I went with my parents because they were kind of the, the, the next best bet. And they were, you know, my parents, after, after years of my sort of, you know, rejecting um, some traditional aspects of Indian culture, they were thrilled. <laughs> Yay, you want to go back to India? We'll, you know, hop on a plane right now. Um, and my, my dad... Um, he 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 really wanted us to see his ancestral village. He wanted to go back there as well. Um, my mom doesn't have much ties um, to her to her um, ancestry. I think my dad's dad's a little bit closer to to his family there. So yeah, so we went back to um, my dad's village and we we met with some relatives and it was um, a lot of a lot of like you know sitting in rooms. Um, and passing the chai around and the samosa around and just like just talking and catching up and just like entire entire generations of families just packed into a room um you know then like three doors down you know to, to like the whole village everyone just showing up being like oh you're here <laughs> yeah. oh you're visiting okay so we're here now too let's all catch up um so yeah there was there was that that kind of there was a sense of reunion to it but then we also got to do you know other things like in delhi where we were a little bit more anonymous so we got to we didn't have to we weren't obligated to kind of visit relatives in, in the cities when we were there um so we felt a bit more like tourists in those places and but these relatives like these aren't people that you grew up seeing these are people you were no. meeting were they people you were meeting for the first time yeah yeah they were um and some were you know some of the especially the older people were quite um quite traditional um and so I don't think, uh, at least my my mom didn't think that they'd be able to fathom um, the fact that like that I was not married to a Punjabi man. Like they they just wouldn't be able to really comprehend that or or accept that. I wouldn't say they wouldn't comprehend it. They wouldn't accept it. Um, so my my mom, uh, one of them asked, you know, you know, where's your husband? Um, they asked me, where's your husband? And my mom said, oh, he's back in Singapore. And then she, my mom took out for some reason she 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 showed them a photo. Of, of, of our wedding I don't know like proof you know she she really is married um but my my it was from our Sikh wedding and my husband was wearing a turban and and besides that he still looked very much like a you know Caucasian <laughs> man and they all pass the photo around they're like oh yes very handsome very handsome <laughs> and it's like turban transformed him somehow like suddenly he was Sikh um so I think we got away with it <laughs> So is your dad is your dad still a diplomat or is he is he retired or is he still working? Yeah, he's still working. Okay, so when you travel, do you have like diplomatic immunity if you're with him? <laughs> no, no. I think I think we had that um only in in certain circumstances. Like we only had it if um I think if if he was on a posting at the time uh and and I was under 18, like I was his dependent. And even then it was like yeah, it you know I we, we weren't we didn't take advantage of it or anything. I was going to say you were you would have been the one in high school that I would have wanted to hang out yeah. with. <laughs> yeah. You want to hang out with the kid with diplomatic immunity? <laughs> diplomatic immunity. Yeah, no, I don't think it. Um, 
it, it extends as far as the movies would suggest. I think that the, the law still does and should <laughs> apply to, to, to the kids of diplomats, especially, I think, because we, yeah, sometimes they think you can get away with a lot more than they, than they should. So I want to ask you a question about something that's in the novel. Uh, and it has to do with the Sharina character, the youngest who, uh, marries, uh, an Australian and, mm-hmm. uh, Meet. Wait, they, she's the character who meets via the arranged marriage, yeah, w- like dating site. And so, as I was reading, yeah. I was like, "Is this really a thing?" Oh, absolutely! It's a huge thing. But I don't, uh... how does it work? Like, I was I was confused about the mechanics of it. Like, you post online like a dating site, but it's like, "Hey, we're looking for an arranged marriage." Like, what? Yeah. I, I've never seen such a thing. Oh, really? I'll have to send you a link. <laughs> so the, the, I mean, there's so many. There's so many. Um, and the most famous, and, and ev- every Indian person, whether they grew up in India or, or live outside of it and are, and are many generations removed, everyone knows of these, these sites. Everyone has, has been to them at some point, maybe not to look for an arranged marriage, but just just to look, <laughs> just, just to see, see, what, see, see what it is, because it, it's really fascinating. Um, so the most popular one is shadi.com. Um, How do you spell this? I, I for, means, for people listening. Shadi is S-H-A-A-D-I.com. Okay. Um, All right. Um, and they, I mean, they're a whole database and they're very detailed. Like, so you, it's just like a dating site. Like, it's just like, you know, what what I would think eHarmony or, or something would be like. I'm sure, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking that maybe nowadays there's probably even more efficient like there are probably apps it's probably like arranged marriage tinder i'm sure i'm sure that that's a that's a thing um but the 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 profiles that are created um can be very very detailed like they come down to like the astrological signs and the, you know all these all all the details of the parents on both sides or, or on the side of the person who's looking and then on the side of the the person that they hope to meet um, and you, you know, there's your photo, obviously, and there's there's a lot and the, you know information about your siblings and and it 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 really is it's all the things that um that people want to know. It's all the information that people seek when they're looking for an arranged marriage or when their parents are trying to arrange their marriages. But it's in this sort of database, um, and there's there's all these these profiles to look through, so you can kind of filter your search according to caste. Um, community language is spoken. Vegetarian or non-vegetarian is a big one. Um, smokers, divorced—you um, know—all all of those things. It's just—it's—it's—it's quite—it's—it's it's, yeah—it's quite um, robust <laughs> so, as a system. So I've always—you know—it's always, you know, always a—it's uh, a fascination. This concept of arranged marriage is in the West. We don't do this, but I—and uh, and I know that in uh, cultures where this happens, it's—it's it's the parents who do the arranging. And yeah. I, I think in my younger days, uh, I was like reflexively like, Ugh, like that's weird, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. But now I'm like, now I'm starting to think about it. And I think about friends of mine in particular who are single and yeah. who are having a hard time meeting somebody. And I'm 43. So, I mean, if you're, it yeah. get, gets harder maybe as you get older. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe there should, like, I don't think necessarily the parents should be the ones doing the arranging, but you should be able to like hire your own council of, yeah. arra- of arrangers. <laughs> Yeah. And like, it's not yeah. the, it's, I mean, and listen, if your parents, uh, have their heads screwed on straight and they really know you and have your best interests in mind, all I'm saying is that it's not the worst way in the world to get set up with somebody. I think that making yeah. it, a, making it a marriage 
right out of the gates, like making that the deal uh, mm-hmm. from moment one is a little intense. It puts a little bit of pressure <laughs> yeah. on the situation. But well, I think there, there's room in the market for some sort of like dating site that's not Tinder, but it's for people who are just frustrated and they're like, listen, arrange it for me. I'm going to create yeah. create my own council of friends who know me well. Yeah. They're going to vet and that's the way it's going to be done. I'll do whatever they say. Well, that's that's generally what arranged marriages are in India now, unless they're in like really rural places where there's really low literacy and there's really, you know, people are just meeting, you know, once or twice in the presence of their families and then and then getting married. Like that's my grandparents generation in the village that they came from. That's how it was done. Um, But in the in the cities um, and in in most of India, um, and, 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 and in the Indian diaspora, absolutely, like in the UK and in Australia and in Singapore, it is very much like that. It's very much your parents um, know someone, they get in touch with that person's parents, or sometimes it's just like your parents know of someone, like someone in their network gives them, you know, a, a phone number of someone who's interested in meeting someone, and then they pass it along, and then you date for a while um, if if you like each other, and then you get married. There's not the same kinds of pressures. There's not the same kind of um, restrictions where you meet once and then, you know, you, you're getting married you know, next month or something. Right. It's, um, or you only meet on your, your wedding day. I think that's the, that's quite a, that, that's kind of the, the old definition of what an arranged marriage is. And now it's, it's a little bit more like what you described. It's a lot more like that actually. Yeah. I want to say I was, I was either reading about a couple or I'm forgetting what it was, but it was like, it was that kind of thing. It was of the old school where it was like, our parents put us together. We were getting married. We spent like, you know, a few hours with each other before the wedding day. Yeah. But then like it worked out. Like they had like a deep yeah. lifelong love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I guess like in my head, I'm like, this has got to lead to unhappiness mm. just because people don't have agency and they're not doing it themselves and following their own hearts or whatever. But I don't know. I would be curious to know what the stats are like in terms of uh, people. Well, I think this is. The statistics are that, um, sorry to interrupt you there, um, but the statistics are that, that arranged marriages um, work, uh, I think I think they, they last longer or they, they, they work out better than, than um, so-called love marriages. Um, but I'm a little bit wary of those statistics because I, that, that gets <laughs> thrown in my face a lot. Girls like me, that gets thrown in our faces a lot. <laughs> um, you know, oh, you know, arranged marriages are better. Look at how, you know, how, how much, you know, the, the, the divorce rate is very low. But then I also think that the people whose families would set up, set them up for arranged marriages generally come from more traditional families where their definition of happiness is about pleasing their families. And so I do wonder about how much um, autonomy they would have to leave a marriage or to abandon a marriage if they don't feel like it's working out because there would be such a ripple effect um, for their families and their communities um, and their happiness is kind of pinned on, um, on, on this collective happiness. So I'm a little bit skeptical about, you know, I, I, I don't know if arranged marriages really are happier than other marriages. Um, I just, I, I think that um, people sort of make it work I'm more gonna, often in arranged marriages I might, yeah, for, because of cultural pressures, I think. I might have to arrange my daughter's marriage. I think I'm going <laughs> to bring this up. Uh, so I want to talk about your life. Like you, I know you went to high school in Manila, uh, but then what happens after that? And then I want to try to get into how you uh, started writing. So wh- did you go off to yeah. college? You went off to college after Manila, correct? Yeah. 
Yeah, I went to college in the U.S. Actually, I went to um, Holland's University in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, which is a women's college um, that had a an excellent creative writing program, um, which was a little bit unexpected because I was I um, my whole thing about going to college in the U.S. was just about um, my, my, my motivation was just to get as far away from my family as possible, um, <laughs> like like most 18-year-olds, I think, um, and, and also just get, get um, I, I didn't want to come back to Singapore. Um, I, was, I was really determined to, to keep sort of traveling and to keep um, move, moving in, in a different direction. Why? Uh, um. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think when when I was growing up in Singapore, I, I, because we because we moved internationally so much, and then we would come back here, um, I, I just didn't really feel like I belonged very much. I, we the, the 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 education system here is very um, very very um, or was I think it's changed a bit now, but it it was very restrictive and very um, rigid. Uh, and, and I really, I really struggled in school here. I always, I was, I just um, was constantly, I was just labeled the dumb one a lot. And I, I don't think it did great things for my self-esteem. Um, you know, reading books was kind of seen as a, a silly pastime. Um, and I just, I just had a sense that if I came back here for my education, it was just going to be more of that. I mean, university is different, um, but I, I just, I just, I, I just didn't want to be back in a in a very um, in a country that was very competitive and very focused on science, math, and engineering as 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 the the only options um, um, for 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 my future. Um, and you know, th- th- there wasn't much in the way of um, a creative community here. There wasn't much. There wasn't anything really in the way of um, a literary community. There is now. So lots of people like me who left. Um, you know, who left just sort of rejecting the the way Singapore was very focused on on professionalizing things and commercializing things um, came back because they said, you know, well, we, we're going to be the ones who start this. We're going to be the ones who start a literary culture. And it's absolutely booming here. It's it's a wonderful place to be a writer, which is not something I would have thought when I was 18 and and, and, and wanting to get as far away from it as possible. I feel like Roanoke, Virginia is pretty far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I achieved yeah, achieved what I was I was trying to do there. Um yeah, it was it was a small liberal arts college, also very different from 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 Singapore, um from, from conservative Singapore. Um and I was ready, you know, like I was ready to just um be in a place where I could express myself and I had a voice and I wasn't going to be punished for having that voice and I wasn't going to be censored all the time, which, which I just felt constantly, I just felt constantly oppressed, um, in Singapore. Um, and I, I just had the most amazing time. Like I, I had, I just had the most wonderful professors and peers who were supportive and who wanted to listen to my stories um, who gave me constructive feedback. Um, and I just always, I always just felt like writing when I was at Holland's, I always felt, um, you know, like, like there was just this, this overwhelming sense to create things and, um, to read and to, I was just really immersed in this creative world for, for the years that I was there. That's, Um, that's what college should be. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had, you know, possibly the best, the best possible outcome from, from that, that, um, 
the the ideal of what a, a college experience should be. I absolutely had that. I was I was really really fortunate. So how did you wind up at Holland's College? Like I, how did you like in, in Singapore locate it? Yeah, well, I was actually I was in um I was in college. Oh, sorry, I was in high school in the Philippines. Oh um, right. In Manila. And so I, when I brought up this um, this crazy idea to my parents that I wanted to go to college in America, um, and you know the, the high school that I went to, pretty much everyone was going to college in America um, because it was it was an international school. A lot of kids were U.S. citizens um, or just had like you know that that was just a next next natural step. Um, and so I, I think that probably I kind of rode that wave with everyone. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to college in America as well. Um, and my parents said, absolutely not. You're going back to Singapore because that's, you know, that the, the university's there and it's perfectly fine. There were no creative writing programs there at the time. And I was like, but I, I, I think I want to write. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I knew it, it, I wanted to in, at least try um, creative writing classes. And I just never had any of that in high school. Um, and my parents were like, that's a, <laughs> that's a ridiculous reason to go all the way to America. Um and so, so essentially they said, you're, you're going to have to get a, a scholarship because we're not, we're not going to pay for that. Um, and there were very few universities that were giving scholarships um, to students with my, you know, pretty average grades. Like I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't going to be an asset to any, any university you, according to my transcripts. But you had a, you had diplomatic immunity. It doesn't matter what kind of grades you get. <laughs> yeah, I should have brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, and, and Hollins was 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 one of the few that that gave scholarships to international students. Um, they they came through with a partial scholarship, so it was still a very long fight with my parents for about a year before they, or about about six months before they they let me go. Um, and and they did. Um, and yeah, that that was how I ended up at Hollins. But I think I found out about Hollins yeah from a from a list of universities that had um, that gave out um, scholarships to international students. And then there was. A, a, a girl in the year before me who had gone or a couple years before me in my in my high school in Manila who had gone to Holland's as well um I think I, I don't think it was for because of the scholarship I think she just yeah I think she 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 just went for it um and and really liked it and sort of reported back that she was having an amazing time and so my guidance counselors you know said that this might be a good fit for you Oh, yeah. So did you go, did you, it sounds like you were interested in being a writer all the way back to high school. So you must've been reading books that had, uh, an impact on you and gave you the bug. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I think I, I read, I think it was around, I always liked to write, like since I was a little kid, I loved writing stories. I loved, um, you know, reading, um, and, but I didn't really have a sense that I would, would be, I would be a writer. I think I started taking that really seriously around the time I was about 14 or 15. So it coincided nicely with the time we moved to the Philippines. Um, the, the school I went to in the Philippines, though, it was still, it was still very, it was quite um, academically rigorous in, in, in like structured kind of um, academic programs like, like advanced placement and the IB. So I had to do the, the, the international baccalaureate. Um, which didn't allow much room for creativity. I mean, my, my teachers had a, had a more uh, flexible and creative approach to things than my teachers in Singapore did, but it was still very much this sort of academic treadmill and it was very much a means to, to get to college. Um, so I still was kind of hungry for more creative outlets. 
Uh, and so I think I just kind of, yeah, I, I took full advantage of that when I got to Holland's. Did you read it? Like, were there books early in your life that are sort of touchdowns for you that you look back on and say, that was what got me on my way? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I probably wasn't a hundred percent conscious of it at the, at the time, but I remember when the God of small things first came out. Uh -huh. um, and that was, I think I was, I was fairly young when that first came out. Um, and I, and I don't know if it was because it was just a lot of buzz about it. And like, even, even my parents were like, Oh my goodness, what, you know, this, this book, it's, this woman's always in the news or whatever. I think it was just, it was, it was suddenly everywhere. And a lot of people were talking about it. And so we had a copy in our home. Um, and I read it not fully understanding what was happening, but I was enthralled, like the language, the way the language was used, the way that story kind of spoke about, um, ab about a family, um, and their inner lives, but also just made this larger point about Indian society. I, it, it just, it just transported me to another world. Um, and, 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 and I, I was just amazed, amazed that language could do that. Um, and then a couple years later, actually, when I was in high school in the Philippines, um, we studied the book. Uh, I think I was a junior, maybe a senior in high school, and we actually studied The God of Small Things. And then we started to look at the technicalities of the language and, you know, just the, the way the narrative was written. And again, I just fell in love with it all over again and, and in a completely different way because now I had a bit more maturity and a bit more vocabulary and just a, a, a sense that, you know, writing writing really is powerful and this is why yeah it's funny I, I remember that book as well i was in college and i would go to the bookstore pretty regularly and for some reason that one wound up in my hands and i don't know what it was i guess it was maybe prominently displayed and i started reading the yeah. blurbs but i sort of i felt like i was sort of out of my depth when i read it in a similar yeah. way except like i was in college and you were like 14 it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it was the, and even more of a remove for me in terms of my experience yeah. and stuff. But I, I read it and um, I want to say Arundhati Roy, I want to say I read some interview with her where she was like, yeah, I barely made a single change to that book. There was wow. like, like one draft that shot out of me. This could be, to <laughs> this could be totally apocryphal, but I, I somewhere yeah. in my, in my memory, I have that. And uh, I also found that um, her training as an architect was an yeah. in interesting aspect to her story and to her art yeah, because yeah. she, you know, you can sort of uh, feel certain like motifs and resonances yeah. in the structure of her work that sort of like, you know, I don't know, you can see the line between somebody who designs buildings and somebody who puts a book together with that much intricacy, but like structural yeah. soundness. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, you're, it's, I, I, I believe that, that it was, um, that it just sort of all came out of her and it, because it, it felt like that kind of book. Um, it, it, and it felt, it just felt so personal and also so bold, like just the way that she, she, she almost invented, you know, a certain kind of language to describe, um, to describe her surroundings. I thought, yeah, that, 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 that makes complete sense that it sort of came from somewhere within and it, there wasn't much, um, there, there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't much sort of um, nitpicking over over particular words, which is why it just feels so fresh. When's that going to happen for me? I'm waiting. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Can't wait. <laughs> Speed this up. Um, so did you go, like, you know, it sounds like you had like a pretty, 
um, I don't know. It's not like uh, oppressive childhood. Like you had a, you had a good time. It sounds like and, and good parents and everything. But when you you get away, you're thousands of miles from home. You get to yeah. college. Like, did you ever go wild, or did you pretty much <laughs> j- just start writing and reading and working to learn how to become a writer? That's that's really interesting because I do. Um, I I had some friends growing up um, whose parents were more traditional than mine like like i said like my parents you know like like to consider themselves quite modern um so they're like oh you know you shouldn't drink but we should let you drink because we're modern (laughs) 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 you like they they kind of had these knee-jerk reactions to their knee-jerk reactions um and so because of that i think my parents gave me more freedom than a lot more punjabi girls that i knew growing up like you know they weren't they, 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 you know, they, they weren't sort of up in arms if I, if I um, went out at night, you know, when I, when I was a little bit older, like in later years of high school, um, they were still, I think they were strict in comparison to my like Western friends. Um, but they were quite laid back, um, compared to my, to my other Punjabi friends. And those, those girls did go wild when they went to college or when they got away. Like, and there were, you, you hear these stories even now, um, from, from, from some of the, 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 the younger Punjabi girls that the the ones who are who's you know who have the liberty of wearing short skirts um and 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 going out at night um don't do it all the time because they're like yeah I can do that anytime um but the ones who aren't allowed to do that whose parents like you know closely monitor their every move the minute they get a little bit of freedom um they just they have no kind of sense of control um, <laughs> and they just they just go a little bit nuts um so luckily no I didn't I didn't really um have a, a a rebellious phase or anything um and in fact like when we like in in the philippines there really there were there weren't really any laws like i'm not saying this is someone who has so-called diplomatic community <laughs> i mean there just there were but they were just very loosely followed and they just they weren't really followed and so um drinking was a really really big part of high school but not like at parties and stuff like you would in the u.s like like drinking in bars like like 16 year olds going to bars and like i mean this is the 90s sometimes drinking with teachers after school was completely okay like like you know going to the bar after school with your teachers um because that's just what you did after school was 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 like pretty acceptable did you um, but did you get in top like did you did people get wasted or was it just like social oh, yeah. drink oh you did yeah, okay yeah 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 absolutely like um but again like i think i got that out of my system pretty early like you do that one or two times and you're like all right i understand moderation now um and so i didn't have that that moment in college when, and when my peers were all you know like like some of them were, were were going pretty wild and because the drinking age in the u.s is 21 as well i think there was this sense of yeah you know we're rebelling or we have to do this discreetly um that that was that was quite different for me um and i don't think my parents were particularly worried that that was going to happen for me either i think they kind of knew that i got it off my system and i just i just wasn't that interested in in, in having a a, a year of rebellion or, or whatever. Like that's not why I was going away. They knew, they knew pretty well that I just wanted to get away from them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, too, I mean like the, just the nature of your childhood, like the peripatetic, uh, and the international aspect of it, you know, you had been exposed to so much more than most of your classmates at Holland's college, I would imagine by the time yeah. you, you hit 18. And so I think there's maybe less of a tendency for kids who have seen a lot 
you know, yeah. and have kind of like been around to, to do the, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So when did you get uh, down to business, like actually trying to write and publish? Um, so a year, so after I finished, um, at Hollins, I went on to, um, an MFA program at, um, George Mason university, which is in just in the suburbs of Washington, DC in, in Virginia. Um, and I actually only, it was, it was a three year program. I only spent a year and like a couple of months, um, in that program because I, I, I got really, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, and I was, I was pretty sick by the end of that year cause I just sort of kept ignoring it and I, and I, and I think I, I got better and then I got worse and, um, and so I ended up having to leave the program. Um, and, and I really, um, my, my intention was to go back eventually and finish up that MFA. Um, but so that, that first year in the program, I think became, I think the year of taking it, taking writing really seriously, um, and, and thinking about this as a profession and thinking about it as a daily practice that you did, uh, outside of class and that you carved out time for, um, and, and, and starting to think about it in the context of publishing and, and, and pitching to publishers. I don't think we were, we were taught that so much. Like, I don't think it was, I think it was the, the MFA program. I think most MFA programs are very much focused on craft, um, but I, I, you know, it, it started to kind of plant those seeds for me. Like, this is something that I'm going to take pretty seriously. Um, and so when I left the program, I was, I was pretty heartbroken because I, you know, I wanted to continue that. But then I realized as well, like, you know, it, it was a bit of a test for me to see, you know, okay, you're away from the program. You're out of a community of writers. You're out of that context, um, where, where writing is all around you. How are you going to carve out your own time to write now? Um, and I had to get a full-time job. Um, and so I, I, I taught at a, at a, at a boys school here in Singapore for a year, um, or I think almost two years. Um, and I started writing in the evenings and on the weekends and carving out that time. And actually that was also very good training for me. It taught me, you know, how to carve out that time and, and where to kind of, um, make sacrifices in, in, in my life so that I, I could, um, always have room for writing, um, and so that, 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 you yeah, taught me a lot. How long did it take you to get to, I guess, uh, erotic stories for Punjabi widows was your debut? No, no, it was my third book. Oh, okay. Oops, sorry. Yeah. And so, and so uh, how long was it before you got to the first book? Like, did you have um, novels in the drawer and false starts and all that stuff or did you? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I so I had a false start with, um, with, the first novel that I started, I really started writing it when I was at Holland's, but it was just, you know, it was a series of vignettes and, and, and descriptions of things and characters. And it, it didn't come together uh, with one single narrative. Um, so it wasn't really a novel, but it was the way I think I learned how to write a novel is when I kind of looked at it at the end and I thought, okay, I have lots of stories here. They're not, they're not quite short stories. They're about the same characters, but there's not really um, a thread that's tying them together. And I knew I had to give it distance. Like usually when, when something just doesn't work, I give it a bit of distance. So I put that in the drawer and I started working on something else that I had, um, so, something that I had started writing as an assignment. Like it was three pages that I started writing as an assignment um, at George Mason um, just before I got really sick and had to had to leave the U.S. Um, and I, I, I pulled that out and I started, I, and I turned that into a chapter 
Um, and then I, when I was at George Mason, I had been aware of this the fellowship at the University of East Anglia um, that was given to a writer who wanted to write about some aspect of um, of Asia. I think it was I think it was specifically far uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and I had I, there was a writer that I really liked, a Thai writer um, who had won that fellowship before, uh, and and someone else had mentioned it to me as well. Uh, and I used this chapter to apply for that fellowship, thinking you know, th- thinking there was no way I was going to get it. Like it was, I, I thought it was just so far beyond my reach. Um, and then I, I got it. Oh. Uh, and I spent a year uh, in England, um, so a couple of years, I think two years after I left that MFA program, so I was about 24, um, and yeah, just, just spent a year trying to write this novel um, in England. It was also a lot of um, unstructured time, because there wasn't, there wasn't a teaching obligation or anything um, with the fellowship, so it was... It, it was it was a little challenging sometimes to try to um, give shape to the day um, and to make sure that I didn't just fall into this inertia of just, <laughs> just being in England during winter, uh, <laughs> which is it's, you know, quite easy to do, just kind of stay in bed all day. Um, but I, I think, I, I again, I, that, that was another kind of um, a, a moment of learning for me where I thought about, you know, the ways in which I need to um, structure my days and to, to give myself sort of reasonable goals each day for writing. What kind of goals are you talking about? Are you talking like word count or page count or? Yeah, it kind of varies. Like I try to be a bit flexible with it. Um, but I also try not to cut myself too much slack. Cause I think that like, I think it's a fine balance between, you know, being like, it's, um, saying, you know, a writer just needs to experience things, um, to, 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 to write something, um, and and then also getting getting down and actually doing the writing. Like I think it's it's quite easy to just be like, oh, you know, I'll just I'll just uh, imagine all day. Or I'll just go for <laughs> lots of walks. That's all part of writing. Um, and sometimes I I know when that's BS. <laughs> like I, uh, I know that I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah. I'm just wanting to have a vacation. Um, so sometimes um, it's it's word counts. Um, just because I need to just get something down, and I know it's it's not necessarily about quantity but then it's also just like i don't have any ideas so i might as well write you know a couple hundred words by lunchtime and see see where that takes me um sometimes it's like if i have a more concrete draft of something down then it's okay i need to kind of figure out what's happening at the end of this chapter by friday or something so i give myself these goals i I try not to be too hard on myself if i don't meet them as long as i've made progress in some way um, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty pleased about that. Well, I think giving yourself a, like goals that are achievable is a good idea. Yeah. Like if yeah. you, if you give yourself, like, I got to finish the novel by the end of the month and you're on page four, it's like, <laughs> you yeah. know, you're just going to wind up feeling like a failure. So it's good to give yourself yeah. these goals that you can actually knock out. Yeah, I think so. It, it, yeah, it's, 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 there's nothing more discouraging and disappointing, um, than, than not meeting a goal you've set up for yourself, I think, um. But then it's usually because they're 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 not very achievable in the first place. Um, so I I try to be yeah I I try to be pretty reasonable with them. So what about this year in England? You have this you know this sort of like fantasy writer life. 
uh, <laughs> at least in terms of like obligations and the ability to focus. Yeah. Uh, did, did what did you produce in that year? Um, so I produced a draft, uh, not a complete draft, and a lot of stuff that eventually was thrown out um, because I was I was still you know very early um, in my writing career and 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 didn't really understand. Um, that not everything needed to be in the draft that that I didn't really understand you know how to how to shape a novel um, and and I was, still, I was still trying to figure out what the story was um, but it was it was for my first novel it was um, my, well, my first published novel so inheritance um, which I then spent quite a lot of time like I think I I, I finished the fellowship in 2008 um, and inheritance was really only finished at the end of 2011, I think. Um, yeah. And it was, and it was published at the start of 2012, maybe, or 2013. I can't remember. So it was, it was quite a long process of just trying to figure out what this novel was. And, and in that time after the fellowship, I moved back to Singapore. Um, I got a job working, writing for a magazine, um, I um, moved to Australia <laughs> after that. Why? Uh, I again wanted to get, get, get away from Singapore. Um, <laughs> get away from but you family. just you just can't get away. <laughs> I just yeah yeah I kept going back and now now I'm here again so you know it's 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 um it keeps calling me back. Um, yeah, at the time again I, I I moved back and and there still wasn't there, there were just beginning to be. Um, some some sort of rumblings of a literary scene in Singapore, but they were still very disparate and very not. It really wasn't. It didn't feel like the community that it is now. Like it wasn't. It wasn't a very um, big community, and it wasn't very visible. Um, now, like you know, you, you at, at every every day of the week, um, at, on any day of the week, I could walk into um, a book reading or a book launch in a bookstore, and it'll be packed. Hmm. Like on a Tuesday night, a poet will be doing a reading, and it'll be there'll be a line out the door sometimes um, because that that's that's what's happened now. There's just been this boom here, which is really exciting. Um, but at the time, I just again, I just felt really isolated, and I also knew um, that I didn't want my whole life to be in Singapore. I think that that happens when you grow up in lots of different places and you you kind of see lots of different places as being your identity. Um, I I was quite interested in teaching in international schools. Um, so I went to Australia to do a postgraduate teaching qualification, um, so that I could, I could travel internationally and teach. Hmm. Um, I ended up staying, I actually really liked Melbourne, um, and ended up staying there for five years teaching in a school that I really enjoyed teaching in. Um, and then, and then moved to Istanbul to teach an international school for one year just to just to check that off the list because i was like no it's still something i want to do istanbul um, was on istanbul was on your list yeah yeah it was it absolutely was i i had always been fascinated with turkey um and 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 just the opportunities to travel from istanbul to other parts of europe um really easily and, and cheaply um it was really exciting and by then um inheritance had been published um my second novel, Sugarbread, had had um, just been published, um, and my agent had taken on erotic stories for Punjabi widows and was um, about to sell it. So by the end of that year in Istanbul, um, it was time for me to kind of put aside the the teaching career and, and focus completely on writing because I had to 
had to come up with this novel, The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters. Wow. So I want to talk to you about navigating the business side of publishing yeah. from these you know, different uh, spots. You know, like what did you do to get literary representation? What market did you focus on first? Did you come to the, did you want to go to the American market first and then other markets afterwards or vice versa? Um, I, so getting, getting an agent, you hear all these stories about getting an agent. It seems, it just seems like there's just all these, like the stars have to be aligned in a certain way in order for, for, for an agent to take interest in your work. I feel like that, that was probably the, the same thing with me. Um, at the end of that fellowship, uh, at the university of East Anglia, cause they have a, they also have a master's program in creative writing. Um, the coordinator of that creative writing master's program was arranging these mentorships between agents and graduating students. And he asked me if I wanted to be um, in that mentorship program. So, so if I wanted to be matched with a mentor and I said, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Um, and so he matched me with Anna power from uh, Johnson and Alcock a literary agency in London. And she, she was amazing. She is amazing. She looked over countless drafts of um, Inheritance, my first novel, and um, gave me gave me really good feedback about how to shape the novel and where she thought the novel was going. And at the end of that, she unfortunately decided that she 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 wasn't going to be able to sell it in the UK market. Um, that it was too quiet a novel, and it was you know it was, it was about it, it was set in Singapore, um, and she just she just didn't really see an avenue for it in the UK. Um, but we didn't part ways exactly. I kind of knew that I wanted to to show her something else in the future. Um, but she she never was officially my agent until um, I sent her erotic stories, and she was much more interested in that because she could see the market for it. Um, and she again worked with me on that for a year. Um, on and that was that was very intense back and forth editing um, and shaping of the novel without you know, any representation or anything. It was just basically as, as a mentor, she did that. Um, and then at the end of that, she, uh, yeah, she, she signed me on. And and then in terms of selling, uh, in like North American rights or whatever, yeah. like where did you sell first? You sell in England first in the UK and then move overseas from there. Yeah. I sold in the UK for, well, I think, um, the, the deal from Harper Collins was, um, the, I think, HarperCollins UK bought it kind of in conjunction with William Morrow in the US. So it was kind of, it was a joint deal between the UK and the US, uh. um, which turned out to be a, a, a really good thing because then it, it, it because it's captured um, uh, the attention of the market in the US much more <laughs> than in the UK. Um, so that, that, that was a, that was a really good, um, good move. Well, it sounds like Punjabi uh, widows sort of broke you out in, uh, in the States because yeah. Reese Witherspoon selected it for her book club. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a kind of a funny, it's, I, I was telling someone yesterday, it's a weird, it's a weird way of eventually returning to America. Like when I think about the fact that I, um, I left that program at George Mason feeling really disheartened and really like really quite sad that, um, that I probably wasn't going to be um, a writer in the place that I had gone to be a writer. Um, and I didn't think that I would necessarily um, only write books for an American audience. So that was you know, that that was the audience that I that I um, that that I wanted uh, for my novels exclusively. Um, but 
because that was where I started off as a writer. I just, I just, I just kind of thought that that's where my writing career would continue. Um, and when it didn't, when it took all these twists and turns, and I came back to Singapore, and then I went to England, then I, uh, then Inheritance was published by a small publisher in Australia, and then, and then later published um, in Singapore. My second novel was published in Singapore. It just, it, and then, and then Erotic Stories gets published in the UK. It's just such an unlikely route to end up back in the US. Um, and, 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 and to be seen now as a U.S. writer um, or be listed sometimes as Asian American. <laughs> um, it's a very roundabout way of getting there, but, you know, I'm happy to be there. How did this Reese Witherspoon thing happen? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I, I, she, she read the book. Uh, her people read the book. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the selection process was. Um, I, because I, you, you don't hear that you're being shortlisted, you know, or that, or that she's considering it. Um, you just, we just got the, 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 the email, um, I guess my, my publicist and my editor, um, in William Morrow in, um, the U S got in touch with me about, I think about two months before she, like it was, it was released to the public, um. And they said, Reese Witherspoon is really excited about um, this book, and she's chosen it for her book club. Uh, and, yeah, that was, that was how I found out. Do you ever, did you get, like, a phone call from her? Did you get to Skype with her or anything? No, no. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I'm still waiting. Still, well, <laughs> still, love, still love to talk to her. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, she's gonna yeah. listen, I'm sure she's going to listen to this podcast, and <laughs> it will be arranged. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so before I let you go, I want to ask you a question that kind of brings us back to uh, the Shergill sisters. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with like spirituality, because that is a concern of the book. Uh, there's an element of that, at least in these sisters going back to their ancestral home uh, at their mother's at their their now dead mother's request um, and to have a set of experiences that their mother has curated for them. Uh, with some design, I think, on eliciting some kind of spiritual, uh, you know, experience, connection to one yeah. another, connection to um, the place and the different places within it. And I guess I'm just curious, as somebody who is part of the Indian diaspora and who had this international upbringing and has lived kind of all over the world, um, like what, where are you in that department? Like, do you have a strong spiritual, uh, orientation or are you religious? Are you atheist? Like what, where do you stand there? Um, I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not particularly religious or spiritual. I think I've always had, um, a, a problem with, um, with rituals, um, and with the senselessness of rituals. Uh, and, and, and with the way, um, people kind of blindly follow, um, certain religious rules, um, or, or, or certain traditions because they think that that's going to, um, showcase their, their, their religiousness or their, their morality. Um, and, and I've, I've always had a, a real issue with that in, in my community. Um, but also just in, in, in general, with with organized religion um and, and i find it really interesting actually like the, the 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 disparity um between what is taught in the sikh religion and then what um how people interpret it um and what what people actually do so like the um sorry there's a plane going over <laughs> i was gonna say <laughs> wow that up. 
that that's actually not very loud. There's some really loud ones. I live near an airbase, so, um, uh, yeah. And, and and with with the pilgrimage, it was the same thing. Like the in the Sikh religion, um, pilgrimages are actually frowned upon. Like they're not they're they're maybe frowned upon is too strong, but they're 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 not they're not a requirement of the religion. Um, they're not something that you need to do. Um, the, 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 the whole emphasis is on just, you know, doing good deeds and serving others and, um, and not necessarily making big displays of lo- your loyalty. Um, but then, but people just still interpret that completely differently and they still go on pilgrimages. And well, um, the, I can tell you everybody at my yoga studio in Los Angeles <laughs> goes on pilgrimages. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing. Um, and, and I, and I, I, I just found that really interesting because it's so, it's so, um, blatantly like with the Sikh religion, there's so many things that the religion was founded. There's so many principles that the religion was founded upon, um, to try to dispel lots of inequality. So like caste was supposed to be abolished by the Sikh religion. Like the Sikh religion was like, no, we're like, like, because the Hindus have caste, we're not going to have that. We're going to have, you know, complete equality across the board. But it's still widely practiced, the caste system um, in, in Punjab. And very, very, like, you know, people are very, very strict about it. Um, even in the diaspora, I have friends in England who wouldn't be allowed to date someone from a different caste. Um, it's not very Sikh, you know. It's not, and, like, and also, like, the, the um, inequality between men and women, that was the whole thing about the Sikh religion as well. Like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're seeing all these problems in, 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 in society where, uh, women are being treated differently from men and, and there's all this female infanticide and, um, and violence towards women. So we're going to, we're going to stop all of that with this religion that gives equality to both. And then, you know, culturally that, that doesn't happen. That doesn't play out that way. So I've always found that really frustrating. Um, and it's made me quite disillusioned with, with religion, um, it, with, with organized religion anyway. Um, cause I just, I think it strays really far from the actual tenets of, of, of the, the the religion um in its original form yeah people are amazing at that they they, they can yeah. screw, they can screw up anything <laughs> they can yeah that'll be the title of my next book <laughs> people can screw up anything <laughs> you're welcome so, so did you but when you when you went on this trip to india uh, and i have not been to india to my regret but uh you know i've heard m- like multiple stories over the years from friends and people uh who have gone over and it, it's hard not to be touched by uh, the deep traditions and the history yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Did you get any of that magic when you were there? Or Yeah, I think magic is a good way to describe it. I mean, I'm almost hesitant sometimes to use, to use the word magic because then it goes into that exoticizing kind of um, language that people use often when they talk about traveling to, to, to Asia and to India. But it really... It, it really does. There is something about India, and I and I really don't know if it's um, if if it probably hits me differently because I uh, am from the diaspora. Uh, but every time I go there, I am I just there's just such a range of emotions that you feel. You feel frustrated. You feel overwhelmed. You feel tired. You feel nervous about some things, but then you also feel like everything's going to work out, and you feel this real sense of closeness with people. Um, and you, you, you feel really happy. It's, it's, it's a really, it's, it's just a, a really wild ride 
going to India. Um, and it's, yeah, you always kind of, you, you really do learn a lot about yourself when you're in a place that is so challenging and so overwhelming, but then also just full of so much heart and humanity. I think it's, it's really, um, yeah, it, 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 re- it really opens your eyes and it really, um, I think, gives you a really raw human experience to, to, to be in India, whether you're there for a spiritual pilgrimage reasons or just there, you know, there for a, a, a party in Bombay, like I was the first time. <laughs> it's a, it's a great place to travel with your, yeah. uh, your siblings with whom you have, yes. stra- you have strained <laughs> relations. It's also yeah. a wonderful, wonderful place to travel. If you have like very young children, just cart them around. It's, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or with your Australian husband. <laughs> That's who right. Has no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a delight to uh, talk with you. I'm really happy that we got to feature your novel in the TMB Book Club, and yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's it's kind of fun to talk to somebody who lives halfway around the world. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and lives near an airbase. I, I I assume you're safe, right? It's all good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think so. <laughs> I hope they let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I appreciate the time, and uh, I wish you well on whatever comes next. Thank you, Brad. It was lovely talking to you. Okay, that is Bali for Joswal. Her new novel is called The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgel Sisters. Available now from William Morrow, Bali Kaur Joswal can be found on the internet at balijoswal.com. You can track her down on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Bali underscore Joswall. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Check it out. Bali Core Joswall, The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgle Sisters. Go get your copy right now. The official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you're interested in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar. You get a book every month. The authors are interviewed on this program. It's an enriching cultural experience. Next week on the program, I have uh, Lilium Rivera, a YA author, which uh, is a bit of a break from the norm and a welcome break. I should have more YA authors on this podcast, I feel. So I had a great conversation with her. You can look forward to that. I'm behind on mail. I just want to uh, make sure I flag that. If you've written to me and I have yet to write back, I apologize. I try to get back to people. But my, uh, my email is falling off. Got a lot of nice feedback on the uh, David Shields episode, episode 577. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. I went for an extremely long walk this morning without even really meaning to. Been walking a lot. I don't know what that means. I think I got, uh, you know, trying to think through things. I like to walk. Walk my dog everywhere. All over this city. This morning, I walked through a cemetery 
thinking that I could like cut through and get out on the other side, that kind of thing, trying to uh, get home, but turned out the gate was locked because the gate that I usually get out through is on the uh, Jewish side of the cemetery. Why am I telling you this? I'll talk to you guys next week. All right. Okay. All right. Okay.